How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. That's bad news. Bad news to have a uh, fire on your pee pee. Yeah. That's not related <laughs> to anything. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it could be related to this movie. Let's be honest. It feels like fair. something Cronenberg <laughs> should have or could have done. Uh, <laughs> to be fair gentlemen your... like we're all we're all at the age where we should be checking regularly like having a doctor check us for for pp fire for stuff going on with our pp yeah wow thank you and, for that and your tv's trying to fuck you <laughs> <laughs> so there's that too yeah uh well hello and welcome to cinema shock the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films i am one of the hosts here my name is gary horde and I am another of the hosts here. My name is Justin Bishop. And I'm Mr. Todd A. Davis. And there is nothing real outside our perception of part five of our series titled The New Flesh, The Body Horror of David Cronenberg. But it's easier and safer to fake it. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Well, <laughs> Those are both hot. lines from the movie, Justin. <laughs> I mean, the first one I got. The second one I didn't, I didn't process. <laughs> Todd has a philosophy, um, and that's what makes him dangerous. <laughs> so at this point in his career, David Cronenberg was, uh, was writing pretty high. You know, the, the success of Scanners, which uh, especially a success in the U.S., meant that it was easier and easier to get his films produced because people knew who he was. People knew that his movies made money. Uh, it meant that he would get bigger budgets. It meant that he'd get more interest from uh, like major studios. Uh, he'd get more interest from producers. He'd have access to more well-known actors. Uh, it also meant that he would start getting job offers. Uh, people would call him and say, hey, we want in the David Cronenberg business. Do you want to do this? In fact, after Scanners, he was actually contacted by none other than Lucasfilm about directing Return of the Jedi. Uh, can you imagine? Those Ewoks <laughs> would have been really gross <laughs> Can you imagine uh, what that would have looked like but according to Cronenberg so he he said he received a phone call it wasn't George Lucas calling him personally it was you know someone lower on the totem pole at Lucasfilm and they asked him if he was interested in what was at that time called Revenge of the Jedi uh, and he and was his like reply, his reply was does Chewie have uh, a real dick or like a red rocket <laughs> and do you think it's physically possible for him to put it inside of an Ewok? I mean, of course it would be. <laughs> and then take the Ewok and spin it. <laughs> so his actual reply was, he's like, well, I'm not just doing other people's material, uh, which isn't entirely the case. Fast Company didn't originate with him. Remember, that was somebody else's script that he rewrote, but it wasn't like based on somebody else's book or anything like that right uh, one of the and, things and, i love about this podcast is that justin clearly intended for the return of the jedi bit of information to be about two three minutes max and i'm just not <laughs> letting it go <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those weird like what could have been kind of stories you know oh yeah uh, it, it, it's really weird to think about 
Uh, and so he tells them, he's like, yeah, I'm not interested because this is, just, that's not what I do. I don't work on other people's franchises. And he said that the response on the other end of the line was stunned silence and then a click. <laughs> so they just, <laughs> they hung up on him. <laughs> They're like, they were stunned that he would just brush it off so easily. Yeah. It, felt, it really feels like they were like, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know what Star Wars was- is? Yeah, Cronenberg, meanwhile, was also like, do you know who you're talking to? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I mean, I get it with with an imagination like Cronenberg's, though, you it's easy to understand why he wouldn't want to be a director for hire to kind of help shepherd somebody, somebody else's vision to the screen. He's far too creative for that, I think. Uh, He was also reportedly offered Flashdance around the same time, which is even weirder to me. Uh, he was a pair, he, he was uh, supposedly the studio head's number one choice to direct Flashdance before Adrian Lynn got involved. <laughs> That's so strange. He was also apparently later on offered Top Gun, which is also super weird to me. Is it just that they really are seeing that he's like an actually good filmmaker and they're offering this? or It had to be because there's nothing about these things that they're, that he's being offered that play into what he's already done like stylistically thematically anything with the exception of a- after uh, after videodrome he gets offered uh, total recall which that makes sense mm. that makes sense for him to be uh approached for that because that fits in with what he does but top gun i mean yeah unless unless maverick <laughs> merges with the circuitry of the airplane and becomes this weird uh, flesh airplane. Holy shit. And I can just, see it. You got me real interested in Top Gun again. <laughs> flesh airplane, new podcast name. <laughs> so, name of my sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, he, br- he brushes this off. He doesn't want to do this stuff. Right? He doesn't want to be a director for hire. Instead, he goes and he has a meeting with Pierre David. Remember Pierre David, we've talked about a few times. He's the director that he'd started working with back on The Brood. Uh, the two meet up in, uh, excuse me, in Montreal to discuss ideas for a follow-up to Scanners. Cronenberg pitches two different ideas to uh, Pierre David, one of which is the film we're talking about today, which is, of course, Videodrome. Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He First has time. been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren, and Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome, starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. Y'all, it feels like uh, after all this time, at least by rep, it's like he's finally grown up into a full-sized Cronenberg. 
He just, <laughs> this feels like he's just a he's a he's a grown boy now. This does feel like the culmination <laughs> of everything that he's done so far. But but Videodrome, I mean, we'll get into the discussion on the, on the film itself later. But uh, as far as like what it might mean and all this, but it also feels a lot like this is all of the obsessions, not only that you've seen in his film so far, but that you're going to see in all of his films after that. This is like the Rosetta Stone of David Cronenberg movies. Yeah, it's it's definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't even elaborate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all of his horniness and weird sci-fi shit just yeah, huh? really just culminates right here. Just uh, climaxes, if you will. <laughs> Into like a, a puddle, like right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a slimy Why's gun. The word puddle. Why's the word puddle so gross? <laughs> if it, if like if you're not talking about like rainwater, the word puddle in any other context is super gross. <laughs> a puddle of a puddle of anything that's not rain is that. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Puddle like, of mud, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see that cover? That's, that's a hot of, take. Uh, that's a hot take, Justin. Is, Whoa, slow down. Take. You're gonna get. You're gonna. We're gonna lose so many <laughs> listeners with hot <laughs> takes like that, Justin. Oh, just just YouTube their uh, cover of about a girl. It's, uh, <laughs> it's real weird. Uh, anyway, so according to Cronenberg, is another one. Oh yeah, that's that's another one. This movie is very moist. I, that's why I thought of it. Yeah, it's just yeah. like a real moist movie. It's but really given all the movie. effects, it just hit me. I would like to. Have, why didn't they offer David Cronenberg like a Muppet movie? <laughs> mm. I mean, they did. Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to see, you know, the the one character talking to Kermit. That's like the vagina tummy. <laughs> <laughs> So according to Cronenberg, the idea behind Videodrome came from his childhood. He, he would pick up American television signals from Buffalo, New York, uh, late at night after the Canadian stations had gone off the air. And he would watch these almost feeling like he's getting away with something. He would kind of worry that he might accidentally see something disturbing that wasn't meant for public consumption. So in, in speaking to Cinefantastic magazine back in 1983, he said, quote, I've always been interested in dark things and other people's fascinations with dark things. Plus the idea of people locking themselves in a room and turning a key on a television set so that they can watch something extremely dark. And by doing that, allowing themselves to explore their fascinations. Uh, That's in a fantastic article, by the way, was a major source of information for this episode. It, it, is pretty incredible. The writer, Tim Lucas, was granted a lot of access to the set. The, the set to Videodrome was a closed set. They did not allow journalists. He's the only journalist who was allowed on set. He went there two times during the filming for a total of nine days. So he was on set a lot. Uh, he had unprecedented access to the cast and crew, the effects guys. That's a really great article. And it is unfortunately not available online because Cine Fantastic is no longer and they don't have an online presence really but i found it on archive.org and there is a kind of a truncated version of the article that's included in the criterion uh release of the film in the little book oh, nice. so uh, i thought you were pretty... gonna say you just had it like you just... no I, I no i found a scan of it that was my my eyes are worse now from having read that scan of it on on uh, archive.org <laughs> but i did get the information off of it i wow. was definitely having to squint a lot though this is a legit thing, though, by the way, that I don't think a lot of uh, you know younger listeners might not get this, but it, it's, it's the one thing I connected with 
a lot with this. And I still do this even to this day, like on YouTube and everything else, which is, well, I'll get to it in a second, which is also scary for a lot of reasons. But when I was growing up, we had a satellite dish and we mm. had like one of the big ass satellite dishes. Like people don't, I don't even know who has those anymore besides like actual TV stations. <laughs> like, yeah, like NBC affiliates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was giant. Like I could sit up in it and all of that. But, and, and then there were two boxes and like on the small box up top, you could move it up and down and it would dictate the direction it pointed in. And there were arbitrary numbers. Like, I mean, nobody gave us a guide or anything with it. I don't even know how I ended up with this thing. It's probably some weird drug deal. My grandparents did or something. I have no <laughs> idea, but <laughs> you could move it like any the, direction. The South Georgia mafia. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then there was a smaller box or a, a larger box below that was like the channels. So then you could go like one through 99 or like to a hundred maybe. And it was like on whatever input you gave the direction, then you could change the channels through it. And most of them were shit, but every once in a while, and I would legitimately, cause I'm a huge nerd would like sit up at night and take a notebook and I would write down everything I found. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and Wish you still had I, those notebooks. Yeah, I do too. Cause it's where I first discovered, like I've talked a lot about like night flight and stuff mm -hmm. like that, yeah. who, who's still around now with like a streaming service, but I found a channel for them on there. And it was this station called N1 who had like uh, bikini competitions really late at night. And I spent a lot of time there and, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but, but you would always be the intriguing part is you're like interested in like what you're going to find and you it's sad, but Deep down, you're always hoping you find something uh, not I don't want to say sinister. That's not really the way to put it, but like just something you're not supposed to see. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, so that's what you're no something for. noteworthy, something out of the ordinary. Yeah. And uh, and I know that that's exactly what David Cronenberg is talking about. And it was exactly like the first second of seeing this movie is like what intrigues me. I'm like, oh, I do that, too. Like, I love that. And even now on YouTube, like you're hoping someday you'll stumble across something just like or, or there's whole sites dedicated. Like this is the weirdest shit on YouTube. And right. here it is. Uh, <laughs> but Cronenberg also in interviews I read talked a lot about how intriguing it was to him to that, like the power that that holds, like the what you could possibly find and even he, he even in one interview was talking about the idea that like you could stumble into the wrong thing and then like the government could come to your house because you're like well and and the idea for civic tv was kind of based on one of those channels there was a there was a channel in toronto called city tv that was known that they were kind of famous for late at night they had this series that they would play called baby blue that was basically softcore porn that they were showing on cable you know and so that's i mean city tv civic tv it's very clear that that's where the the inspiration was yeah yeah it's it's weird i guess the point i was trying to make too just to be clear was like you're you're, you're hoping to find interesting things you weren't supposed to find and right. then Sometimes you know you that you're risking up. yeah you know that you're risking it you you don't you don't really want to find the snuff film but you know, probably, probably. Hopefully. I, don't know. I can't speak for everybody. I, I can't speak for Todd, but I'm saying like. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, back back to the story. So, you know, Cronenberg's got these ideas uh, from watching watching these uh, late night cable channels when he was a kid. And he had this idea that, hey, what if people had the ability to sit in a dark room and just basically 
turn on a television and see their darkest fantasies on the screen. So his first exploration of these ideas actually came back in the 1970s, early 1970s, with a treatment that he wrote called Network of Blood, which is yet another in a series of bad titles for Cronenberg projects. Well, you say that, but if Clive Barker had written this, <laughs> like that, 100% would be the name. Uh, and that story was about a worker at an independent television company who would kind of later morph into Videodrome's Macarin, who accidentally finds a private television network subscribed to by strange wealthy people who were willing to see bizarre things. That's Cronenberg's own description of it. And then much later, he had this idea for a story that's told from the main character's first person perspective where the audience would see the subjective growth of the character's madness is the way that he put it. The idea is basically that even when someone is going mad, that that's still their reality. They don't see themselves as going mad, but to it from an outside perspective, that person looks insane. So he had this idea that we're only going to see it from that first person perspective. So he took these two ideas kind of, and kind of clicked them together. And that eventually led to Videodrome. Another prototype for the film came in 1977 with this telefilm that Cronenberg directed for the Canadian Broadcast Corporation called The Victim. Uh, this was filmed between Shivers and Rabbits, so very early on in his career when he was still doing some TV stuff. And it was part of a TV series called Peep Show that aired in 1975 and 76. Uh, Peep Show was basically a 16-episode anthology series, different directors doing different episodes. Each episode was kind of a standalone story, basically like a movie of the week kind of thing. Uh, some of them were more experimental, some of them were not. But Cronenberg directed two episodes, uh, the first of which was The Victim. Here's how Cinefantastique described the plot. Jonathan Welsh stars as a young man living in a state of emotional isolation. When he sees an attractive woman, he harasses her with a series of obscene phone calls. I am naked. I'm naked. The woman teases him along until he invades her house by squeezing through a wall passage kept open for her cat. When he gets through the hole, he steps out into a state of pure hallucination. Trapped inside a large cage, the object of his attention reclines on her bed dressed in a kinky S&M outfit, just out of reach, teasing him to death with provocative words and actions. <laughs> I love that Todd not only read that in a movie guy voice, but he, he read it in a movie guy voice that is like, for a, a, a 90s a rom romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going for. <laughs> uh, but you can see, listening to that description, you can see how that's related to Videodrome. I mean, how that's almost like an early draft or an early version of what he would do in Videodrome, minus the actual video stuff. But the, the hallucination, the S&M, all of that is there. Oh, very much, yeah. Yeah. And so Cronenberg started writing the first draft of Videodrome in early 1981, uh, but as with most first drafts, there was a lot of there were a lot of alterations by the time the film was actually released. Uh, it, it, I mean, they were writing this movie up until the last day of filming. Basically, they wow. never had a complete script, uh, but they had an original first draft. 
And in Cronenberg's case, this is actually kind of planned. He knows that he's going to make changes to a script. So when he first sits down to write, he allows his mind to push the limits of what's possible to show on screen, knowing that it's not all going to get there. He even says that like, hey, I write this more extreme than I want to see the final product. But that's where he puts his starting point. Wow. So. And here's another quote from Cronenberg. Also, once again, the Cine Fantastique, he says, quote, my early drafts tend to get extreme in all kinds of ways, sexually, violently, and just in terms of weirdness. But I have to balance this weirdness against what an audience will accept as reality. In the first draft of Videodrome, for example, Max Wren tries to fight his hallucination. You know, when he so when he has the flesh gun on his hand, he chops it off at the wrist. Uh, that you know, the, the So and what happens is. From that stump, a fleshy hand grenade grows out and explodes. And, of course, we see the hand grenade in the final film, but in a different context. Uh, There's another scene from the first draft where Max and Nikki are kissing and their faces melt together into a single object that dribbles down, crawls across the floor, and then up the leg of an onlooker, and then melts the guy. (laughs) And I'm sort of sad that we didn't get to see that on screen because that sounds fun. It sounds something, yeah. It sounds fun. It, it, it's got big street trash vibes to me. I could see that. I really want it's, some like rejected, fired Pixar animator to like put together some of this stuff. Recreate it. <laughs> and then there's the death of Barry Convex, who who basically dies in the film by turning into one giant cancerous tumor. In the original script, that happened to five other characters as well. You have too many giant tumors exploding. <laughs> I think you can. I think you can. <laughs> well, as proven by the studio here. <laughs> so Cronenberg was worried that his producers, which included David Pierre, Victor Solniki, and Charles Harrow, all of whom he had worked with before, he was worried that they would reject the script because that first draft was so extreme. But they ended up loving it. They loved it. Uh, but Harrow did comment that if it were shot as written, that they would probably get a triple X rating. Which, again, Cronenberg knew, had had no intention of shooting the script as written that first go around. It's so funny. He's, like, predicting stuff that's going to happen here. But he's also, like, when you watch the Criterion commentary and stuff like that, he's still, like, put off by things that do get fucked with. Like, uh, the the beginning with the Japanese uh, video that he finds. And there's that dildo. Like, how they cut out the dildo in that one part. Or the first time Debbie Harry and... Uh, did they cut out the dildo like on the original cut or what? Yeah, I think in the original cut, like you said, that they I didn't realize it. Yeah, they took out the dildo and uh, and then like the Debbie Harry scene. Uh, it's a great gag though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and he was just like, "Why? Like, what? Who did that bother?" And then James Woods and Debbie Harry, when they first have sex or whatever, he said it was like really weird. They were like laying on top of each other but then they thought there was too much laying on top of each other they're like well we'll give you like the first couple of seconds and the last couple of seconds and he's like well then you miss the whole point that it's like the room turns into this different place and there's a yeah, you have to see the transformation he's like you ruined the whole effect here and uh and, and his quote on the commentary was actually he said that or he's always believed that censorship is always very personal and has very much to do with the person who's being censorious. There are no actual rules. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And a lot of changes would be made to the to the script before filming, but it was the strength of that initial draft that attracted the film's major cast members and also attracted its makeup effects wizard, Rick Baker, who we will talk about 
in a bit. Uh, first, let's talk about the cast, though. It was the it was the film's producers who actually first suggested James Woods for the lead role of Max Wren. Now, James Woods uh, was a well-respected character actor at the time. Uh, he was most well-known for his work in a 1979 film called The Onion Field, which he, uh, he received a lot of acclaim for it. He actually received his first Golden Globe nomination for it. Uh, so he was you know, very well-respected. He wasn't a movie star by any means, but people knew who he was. They approached Woods. Woods read the script. He loved the script. Uh, but he actually says that Cronenberg himself was a major reason that he signed onto the production. He said that the thing that convinced me more than anything was having lunch with David. He was a good conversationalist, seemed to have a lot of power, and he was a pretty nice guy. I thought it would be a be- I thought it would be better to spend eight weeks with a guy like him than most of the other dopes I've had to deal with. And this is where he nails it, right? Like, I mean, I know James Woods is controversial to talk about if you follow Twitter, but well, James Woods. <laughs> As a, like present day James Woods is not a not a good person. Yes, <laughs> quite simply, he's not a good person. But uh, that doesn't he's, discount he's very his, uh, outspoken politically. He uh, got fired by his own agent for being what his agent called a virulent racist. Oh, fun! <laughs> so, yes. Woo. So yeah, he's not, and he's been he's been kicked off of Twitter like half a dozen times i think for spewing misinformation so yeah yeah james yeah. woods as of now not a great guy james woods in videodrome perfect for the role james woods in hercules perfect for the role i mean he's a good actor but i mean i, I try not to let my view of who he is now color what i see as his performance in this movie but you have to because in this movie james woods is the first time like we finally like the thing i've been complaining about with david cronenberg from the beginning it's finally solved here like david James Woods as the lead dude in this movie is fantastic. Like he's, yeah, he's yeah. perfect. Like you had all these other bland guys from before, like the doctor and shivers, the boyfriend guy and rabid, uh, the husband dude in the brood who like, Steven I literally Lack. can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember anything. Yeah. Cameron, Cameron Vale, Cameron Vale. Yeah, yeah. And scanners. Uh, but, but now, now you got James Woods. Yeah. And then you're going to go to like Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum and Jeremy Irons. And yeah, we got a lot of great leads. Yeah. Vigo Mortensen, you know, yeah. uh, but it's coming up somewhere down the line. I think that uh, James Woods is really perfect for this role because I don't think you could have had someone who is an like has a movie star look that would work in this role because James Woods somehow manages to be really skeezy in this movie but also very charismatic to the point where you're kind of pulling for him, even though you know that this guy is sort of a creep and going possibly you know, insane. That just feels uh, like you're describing James Woods. Well, yeah, <laughs> except for the charismatic part. <laughs> well, I mean, he's got some charisma about yeah, him. Yeah, he does. Why he so does. many people care when he spouts racist nonsense. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think he's fantastic in this role, personally. He's got that. I love the the tv exec like smoking too many cigarettes and just Mm -hmm. you know just i don't know he's he's got the right feel for it he does yeah he's Uh, he's just on that i don't know maybe maybe this was a thing in the time it's he has this sort of like skeezy yuppie vibe but he's working in this thing that's an art form to a degree but it's also very techie but it's on the low side you know it's sort of independent so it's kind of like I feel like you spend enough time with him and see you get a look at his apartment. It's like, okay, clearly this guy, he's not perfect, nor does he 
try to put on airs that he is. His apartment so is th- wacky. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, the, it's really if you weird. Look at, if you look at the stuff he's got like on the walls, there's a, there's a photo of Hitler in a tutu. Yeah, and, like it's, it's just some really <laughs> weird stuff. It's that's weird. Never commented the, on the way you describe him. Yeah, he because you could easily take in this character and had it been uh, I don't know the dude from Rabbit. I feel like it would have he would have just been like a pompous prick and right here it's like he's the head of a network or whatever but he's he's also like he's still got the vibe enough that you're like i'd like to have a beer with this guy he seems yeah, like he'd be fun he's, to talk he's, to he's not so slimy that you're that you just hate him but it's it's not that you're on board with him but you're interested in his journey i feel well like. the thing Does is that that sense? The, the character himself is you know, he's peddling smut, essentially, sex and violence. That's what he's pushing. But when it comes time for that stuff to, like, manifest in his own life, mm. like when when Nikki says that she wants to go on Videodrome, he's squirt, he's squeamish about it, you know? Like, yeah. he's like, yeah, it's okay to sell this to other people, but I don't want it near me. And the way he plays that is, I mean, it's, it's really good because it's like, you, you buy it. You buy this as a guy who he's, he's okay selling it to other people. Uh, but it's like, yeah, that's not for me, though. Well, yeah. what's funny about that is you saying that it makes me think of just the I made fun of the quote at the top of it. But what's her face says uh, you got uh, it has a philosophy, which is what makes it dangerous or unlike you, it has a philosophy, which is what makes it dangerous. Like he's just like he's he's putting on airs. He's, he's interested in the stuff. He doesn't have like any personal like investment until he does. And then he's not sure what to do about it. Yeah. But it's like even with Videodrome. You know what she's saying is uh, well, what Cronenberg was saying during the time was just like a lot of death and violence. And some of the most disturbing things come from people with actual philosophy, like if it's religious or like some sort of cultish belief or something like that, where you get like a dead set mindset that like this has to happen no matter what. This is this is what we do. And, you know, he's just a guy who's just like, what's intriguing? I'm going to just throw this out there and until it starts affecting him. Right. Yeah. And he gets, he gets enchanted by it and, you know, and sucked into it, you know, and then, uh, well, anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mentioned Nikki, uh, Nikki brand, uh, Debbie Harry was another suggestion from Pierre David. Mm. Uh, we all know who De- or Deborah Harry is. She's, uh, credited in the film, but we all know who Debbie Harry is. She of course is the lead singer of Blondie. Uh, at the time she had very little screen presence. She's done a lot more, acting after this uh she worked with john waters she's in pete the adventures of pete and pete of course <laughs> but you know she's done a lot of acting after this seems like a big lead in like i feel like this led directly to pete and pete Prob- i mean it did and <laughs> the, the pitch the pitch for pete and pete was very different at the time <laughs> well, i was gonna say i feel like the the creators of pete and pete were like who is that one chick in uh video drone you remember that? <laughs> i feel like she'd be perfect here so before Videodrome, she'd only appeared in a couple of other movies. She was in a film called Union City in 1980, which was directed by a guy named Max Reichert, who was a well-known visual artist, didn't direct a lot of movies, but a very well-respected visual artist. Uh, that same year, 1980, she appeared in a musical comedy called Roadie, but she's basically playing like a, she's playing Debbie Harry in that movie, just a fictionalized version. Uh, so Cronenberg, he was familiar with who she was, of, of course. He, he knew who she was as a singer. He knew that she uh, ha- that she carried herself well in still photos and on stage. But he was kind of concerned with how she would come across on film. So he watched Union City. 
watched it again. And after watching it a couple of times, he was impressed enough to invite Debbie Harry to come to Toronto to audition. And she nailed her audition and she got signed to the film soon after that. The rest of the cast came through more kind of traditional auditions. uh, Would you compare her? Sorry to jump in here. It just hit me to say this. Would you compare her thing to like, like the Marilyn Chambers thing? You think she's like looking for the, I don't know. Did Cronenberg like a breakthrough? I don't think so. Just not that I, not that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe I don't know if enough about Debbie Harry's uh, life to know if acting was something she was wanting to break into or not. I'm really not sure because the fact that, I mean, this was suggested by Pierre David, but maybe he knew that she was looking to break into movies or something. I don't know. It just uh, seemed like an interesting thing that like this person yeah. who's not known for movies, you know, who's known in other worlds has decided yeah. to try to make like a go at it in movies and both found David Cronenberg. Yeah. I'm really not sure. That's a good question. We'll have to ask Debbie one day. Yeah. We'll have her on. <laughs> The rest of the cast came through more traditional auditions conducted in the late summer of 1981. And the standouts uh, at these auditions included Sonja Smits, who was cast as Bianca Oblivion. Uh, Smits was primarily a stage actress at the time with some TV experience in Canada, but not a lot. And she hasn't really done a lot after this outside of Canada that I'm aware of. Uh, Although I think she's very good in the movie. I think she's got a great look and she's very, uh, yeah, you know, she's good. I don't know how I couldn't think of her name earlier, Bianca Oblivion. Yeah, that's a pretty distinct name. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Peter Dvorsky, who plays Harlan, who I like a lot, was another audition find. Uh, he's another actor who primarily worked on stage early in his career. And then uh, he actually, when he got hired on to do Videodrome, he spent a lot of time before filming working with the film's video effects crew so that he could absorb uh, a, a sort of personal comfort with the video pirating equipment. He wanted to look like he knew what he was doing. I, I also saw that David uh, Su- Subuchi, who is the Japanese porn dealer, yeah, uh, he he later uh, became a minister in the Ontario provincial government. And wow. uh, this movie <laughs> uh, and his role as a controversial uh, pornographer was used against him regularly by the opposition. They know that doesn't mean he's a real pornographer, right? I guess you would think that, but they're like, this is what he does in his spare time. He puts, he puts Japanese dildos on things, <laughs> hides them in little outfits. <laughs> anyway, you walk around his office. It's crazy. Like everything is dildo. It's hidden. <laughs> and they're all dressed up, which is even weirder. Other significant roles in the films included Jack Creeley as Brian Oblivion and Leslie Carlson as Barry Convex the head of spectacular optical now les carlson he is a one in my opinion one of the best parts of videodrome i think he's great i think he's a great bad guy uh he had a long storied career or has had a long storied career he's still around uh mostly i think he's still around at least <laughs> uh he, he's mostly appeared in canadian film productions despite the fact that he was actually American. He was born in uh, South Dakota, but he had appeared in Black Christmas alongside Art Hendel from The Brood. Uh, he had returned to work for Bob Clark again in A Christmas Story in 1983. Very small role in that. Playing the same uh, that, character. <laughs> Plus two movies are context. connected if anybody doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, that, that same year, he not only appeared in Videodrome, but he was in Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, also 1983. And he was also later cast in The Fly, and has had a long string of television appearances on shows like Friday the 13th, the series, uh, The Twilight Zone, and The X-Files. So he's, he's a hardworking actor, and I think he's really excellent in this. Uh, I don't, however, think that he was ever in an episode of Star Trek. 
Well, before we get to Star Trek, I actually wanted to say one other thing about the cast. Okay. Uh, Dr. Oblivion uh, is based on a guy named Marshall McLuhan. Uh, yeah. Just for what it's worth. He's a Canadian philosopher. He's one of the cornerstones of what they call media theory. Uh, the media is the message. Yeah, that's his famous thing. The, yeah. the medium is the message. Yeah. And it was basically saying, like, essentially for me, I, I think I, I think it means like the medium that the information is delivered on is never this innocuous thing. It has no that has no agenda. It always like new mediums to deliver messages are always introduced and fuck with society in some way. Uh, it's as powerful as the stuff that people make for it. If that makes sense, like he he literally this guy predicted the internet like thirty years before the internet was a thing. Wow. He predicted this would be the thing for people to deliver information and then how it could be used and how you know like you could influence people through it and and that sort of thing. Um, so he was a big part of this though because like I, I read somewhere that Cronenberg was a student of his. I don't know if that's he wasn't a student of his. He. Um, he went so uh, he was a professor at the University of Toronto while Cronenberg That's attended there, but Cronenberg never actually took any of his classes. Okay, but he was well aware of who he was because he was uh, fairly famous. He was a uh, one of the the rare uh, like pop philosopher. He was very popular at the time, wow. and uh, so Cronenberg was obviously very familiar with his work. Yeah, and it makes sense for like video drum being this like more powerful thing than even like the first thing they're watching, like the video that they're finding it through. The bigger thing is, yeah, you know, it, it feels like he's kind of playing with those ideas, and even like the uh, cathode ray mission that James Woods goes to, it's like he 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 was thinking of like if if uh, Marshall McLuhan were to make like a self help center or something like that you know like a lot of uh, people like yeah this is what it'd be is to be the cathode ray mission and he he even talks about how like it's weird in sci-fi like he's getting credit for this and he's saying this was not the original intent but you know a lot of times like in uh arthur c clark would get credit for satellite communication or something way before that was even a thing he was like i wasn't trying to do this but a lot of people have given him credit for the cathode ray mission predicting these communities that want to try to get uh internet to all the different parts of the world and like they're like the impoverished communities that can't have internet we've got to get internet to them like bianca oblivion says in the movie like uh we got to get everybody plugged back into the world's mixing board and uh He's like, that wasn't my intention. He's like, but I guess when you write a bunch of sci-fi, you start having your antenna in the air catching things. And like, so you start to think about what people would do. And so he's like, I guess that's where it came from. But just how, anyway, this is interesting. I thought, thought kind of cool little fact there about uh, Charles McLuhan. Yeah, very yeah. cool. I mean, Marshall and, McLuhan. And, he, and not everything that Marshall McLuhan predicted you know, like, like the internet, like you said, came through. Cause he definitely also, I believe predicted that America would split up into various States that were um, separate, that, that were separated by race, I think. So not mm. everything that he predicted came true, but uh, he's still he's only off by race. I would say <laughs> <laughs> he's... otherwise we, we've got, we're kind of weird. So Todd, let's let, yeah, let us know. Uh, Any Star yeah. Trek connections on this particular movie? He's like, let us know what. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Star Trek. So uh, 
David Cronenberg's in Star Trek. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I said we're uh, only allowed to mention that on the first episode. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but not only was uh, Les Carlson not in uh, Star Trek, but nobody else was in Star Trek in this movie. No, like, fuck David Cronenberg. I know. Rick, like, Rick Baker? Nope. Well, Rick Baker I didn't, never? I didn't, I didn't look. I'm sorry. I didn't look. Rick I, Baker, I answered that real quick. I feel like Rick, I mean, he worked on Star Wars, but maybe, yeah. maybe he never did Star Trek. Maybe. What about... Why wouldn't James Woods go get on some Star Trek? Or like Debbie Harry never was an that, alien. I was thinking the ladies. I bet I was like, I don't, I'm pretty sure James Woods hasn't, but uh, I bet you any money some of these ladies have. Nope. Yeah. Huh. Nope. It's wild. Well, who knew? Let's see. Anyway, th- you're coming up pretty short on on uh, your Star Trek and I I didn't for this entire these series, movies, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like you're dropping the ball, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> No, Rick Baker has not done uh, anything Star Trek. Wow. Yeah. Well, Planet of the Apes, Men in Black, The Wolfman. None of those are Star Trek. None of those are Star Trek. <laughs> are there so, any people in those movies that are in Star Trek? <laughs> yes. Okay, give me a minute. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're not doing the six, the six degrees of Star Trek here. So shooting for Videodrome commenced in the fall of 1981. For the first week of the shoot, the crew focused on the videotaping of monitor inserts. That's everything in the film that needed to be shot on video that we're going to see on a screen somewhere. Mm. Uh, These scenes included the monologues of Brian Oblivion, uh, various torture sequences for the Videodrome show, as well as Samurai Dreams and Apollo and Dionysus, those softcore porn shows that we see at various points in the film. Which, by the way, Gary, I know you mentioned that you had the Criterion. You can watch those in their entirety on the Criterion blu-ray uh, how do you think i relieved tension before i got here <laughs> they're they're on there as a special feature it's pretty neat uh, the, the dildo reveal is is really like what gets me going it's really that dildo reveal is really funny to me <laughs> <laughs> it's to me too i think that's why like when i went to uh the caribbean i still have the like you probably you guys might remember this from my apartment or something back in the day but i have like the little guy that's in the barrel and when you lift the barrel, he has like this schlong that's as big as him that like pops out. <laughs> I do not remember that. <laughs> I'm, I'm easily amused by dick humor. Well, this was that was not even written into the script. I think that that uh, wooden dildo was like an idea that Cronenberg had like the day before they were shooting. And he had he had somebody carve it like the night before the shoot, which this happens a lot. We will probably mention it several times during this, I would imagine. But a lot of. Cronenberg comes up with ideas on the fly all the time, much to the the chagrin of his special effects crew who prefer to have things worked out way ahead of time. But Cronenberg, he'll just come up with an idea. is like, hey, can we do this? You know, he doesn't storyboard anything, which Rick Baker even says like, hey, you know, we would have saved a lot of money probably if these things were storyboarded out. But he just likes to think on the fly. That's just kind of his filmmaking style. He doesn't storyboard anything because he doesn't want to be constricted by those storyboards. We need to start making our own websites and that would be like, or, or on, on our website, our own articles that like that would be a good headline. Like David Cronenberg, producers hate it when he does this, and like the first thing, <laughs> you know, that's like clickbait. Click, about yeah, yeah. And you talk about that, like just David Cronenberg being on set one day, and they're just like he was you're filming, and he's just like, wait, hold on, hold on, cut, cut, cut. I really need a wooden dildo. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody like, get me a wooden dildo, da- David. That was hardly the time. 
Uh, I'd worry about splinters, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this was wasn't that a weird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles like finish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's keep it going. <laughs> Twitter. Oh, so this oh. this was not the first time that David Cronenberg had shot on videotape. Those episodes of the Peep Show that he'd filmed in the late seventies, those were shot on video. Uh, but he had a little trepidation about using the format again. Uh, he and Mark Irwin, Mark Irwin's back again this time, by the way. Uh, Mark, he and Mark Irwin were fascinated by the format but it had a lot of limitations that they didn't have when they were shooting on film. So they shot this footage on a Hitachi SK-91 for the the tech nerds out there. Mm. Uh, The film's video crew served as consultants to Mark Irwin, who was used to kind of the the higher resolution and the lighting techniques of film. When he shot the Samurai Dream sequence, for instance, like it was a very bright set, much brighter than he would have lit it if he were just shooting on film. And that was the first thing they shot, the Samurai Dreams. That was the very first thing that was shot on, on Videodrome, was the Samurai Dream segment. What that scene was, filmed, was that? The, the, the one with the wooden dildo. Uh, I'm trying to remember that one. <laughs> I'm just Wait. kidding. I'm just kidding. Remember it. It's inside me right now. <laughs> so that scene was filmed in a rented corner of a TV studio in Toronto, Um And Irwin said that he actually kind of felt, he said he felt right at home. Those were his words during the shooting of this scene because Mark Irwin had actually gotten his start as a cinematographer by shooting porn. How many filmmakers are we going to talk about on this show that started out shooting porn? Canada is not like directly connected to Hollywood. So they got to take what they can get. And so they, there's a lot of porn, especially involved in this Cronenberg series. There's a lot of porn connections because remember, who was it? Fil- Film X or whoever it was who produced his first few films. That was their bread and butter. Uh-huh. That's what I'm saying. Like, it feels like bread Canada and butter has was like actually special... one of their best titles. <laughs> <laughs> just got to butter those buds. You know what I'm saying? Like, just <laughs> that was the sequel. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, no, I was I was being sort of serious. I know it's hard to believe, but no, I was saying like Canada seems to have like this. The Canadian film industry has this special connection to the to the pornography. maple syrup porn, maple syrup yeah. porn. Yeah, and so they can't get around it. It's like all these people. I guess they're so separated from Hollywood. Like your your options are do porn or don't get work. So yeah. everybody yeah. has has that connection somewhere. If yeah. if I was going to start a porn company in Canada, I would call it the red leaf district wow mm. i see what you're doing so what else we got justin <laughs> <laughs> you just want to move on from that let's just move on <laughs> so after the after shooting samurai dreams they moved on to shooting the violent video drum video segments uh, for these sequences they employed stunt people for the victims they didn't just have regular people they, they didn't just kill people, people. <laughs> they didn't just murder people and stunt people uh, and the bloodletting was supplied by uh Shona Jabor, which is the film's makeup artist. And we haven't mentioned Jabor before, but she was one of several Cronenberg crew members who were a holdover from the brood. In fact, most of the brood's crew, behind the scenes crew, with the a, a couple of exceptions here and there, most of that crew was identical on Videodrome because the brood was the last film that he shot in Toronto, where Scanners was filmed in, in, uh, in Montreal. But the film community is fairly small. So a lot of these people just moved from one project to another. So the, he we worked with almost the exact same people that he worked with on The Brood. And Jabor would go on to work on several other Cronenberg movies, including uh, The Dead Zone, 
the fly dead ringers crash existence. Uh, she did a lot of stuff for him. And, and I, I wanted to mention her because, you know, makeup effects artists, they get all the acclaim, you know, cause they're doing all the cool prosthetics and things like that, but general makeup and key makeup artists, they don't get a lot of mention. And I think they deserve a mention as well because hey, they're working just as hard, you know, and, and they're, they're kind of one of the unsung uh, people on a movie set. I feel like. Well, when it's done correctly, it should be, it should just blend seamlessly. But I mean, we've all yeah. seen like bad prosthetics and it's just, it just takes you right out of the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, but again, she's not doing prosthetics. She's doing general makeup. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a lot more subtle, I feel like. But as far as the special effects, uh, makeup effects on Videodrome, that job went to a 33-year-old by the name of Rick Baker. So Rick Baker was not the first choice to do the film's effects. The job was originally offered to Dick Smith, who we talked about last week, you know, the legendary makeup effects artist. But Smith I'm wasn't somewhat available. of a Dick Smith myself. <laughs> I think you've already made that joke. There it is. There it is. <laughs> I figure it's, 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 it's called a callback, Justin. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Uh, Smith was not available due to a prior commitment. So the script was sent to his protege, Rick Baker. Baker's first professional job on a film was actually as Smith's assistant on The Exorcist in 1973. What a way to get your career started in movies yeah <laughs> that's awesome some and, guys you know, have all the luck yeah i mean he got started very young rick baker's story is great by the way i we could do a whole series on his work uh, i was gonna, gonna say make, i don't want to shit on rick baker lot. because <laughs> yeah i, I don't want to shit on rick baker because no it's not all the luck like rick baker's one of those guys who's been like hustling since even even watching the since he was a teenager yeah like watching the commentary for this uh movie like with david cronenberg when he gets into the tech stuff talking about how he talks about the evolution of tech at one point like he just gets into like oh yeah and i remember i had this one audio cassette player that did video and the video was horrible but i was experimenting with blah blah, blah. these aren't guys that just stumbled into it one day and were like now i'm going to make a thing they, yeah. were, they were like guys mm -hmm. that had been making shit tons of things their whole lives they yeah. they just had that draw and it just they were ready when the opportunity arose yeah mm. yeah i mean i what, what's the quote that like uh luck is where hard work and opportunity meet yeah. right uh, right yep. and and baker i mean he was well into his career at this point he's only 33 years old but as i said he got started really early so he's already like a decade into his professional film career at this point uh, I mean, exactly a decade from 1973 to 1983. And he had already worked at this point uh, just for some movies you, you guys have probably heard of. Uh, Larry Cohen's It's Alive, uh, the 1976 King Kong remake with Dino De Laurentiis. He did, oh, nice. he did Kong. Uh, Star Wars. Uh, he's not, I don't think he's credited on Star Wars, but he did second unit stuff. He basically helped to create all the creatures you see in the cantina sequence, uh, which is a pretty memorable part of Star Wars. Yeah, I was going to say, nice um, thing to have you on your resume. <laughs> He did uh, Brian De Palma's The Fury. He did Toby Hooper's The Fun House. Uh, I remember that. Old, yeah, one of the uh, OG Cinema Shock shows. Uh, and then in 1981, he won an Oscar for Best Makeup, the very first Oscar ever given for Best Makeup. It was the first year they did it uh, for his work on An American Werewolf in London. Nice. So he was hot at this time. And they sent him the Videodrome script. Uh, and what he received was that insane original first draft, you know. And he was interested but he flew out to toronto to meet with david cronenberg and he had a he basically had to have a conversation about 
the difficulties that would be involved in bringing the script to life as written. He's like, this is like, this is going to be a very expensive and very difficult process if we put all of this. And I think David Cronenberg had to assure him that, hey, I know not all of this is going to make it into the final film. Mm. And then after returning home to Los Angeles, he quickly realized that the effects as outlined in that script would require a lot of money, a long lead time for prep and the manpower of pretty much his entire crew. He owned his own company at this point called EFX Incorporated. Uh, He's like, it's going to take all of us to do this. But there wasn't enough money in the film script to do that. And the Canadian tax rules made it impossible to bring his entire crew. Because remember, only a certain percentage of people under Canadian tax laws could be non-Canadian in a film. Mm. So he ultimately brought along uh, Steve Johnson, Tom Hester, Bill Sturgeon, and his wife, Elaine Baker, who was a regular part of his crew, uh, although she is not credited on this film. The producers were kind of slow to agree with to agree with his terms, and they kind of kept stalling and stalling until finally they're like two months before the shoot is supposed to begin. And Baker is frustrated. Uh, he's As getting he a lot of. Be. Yeah, he's getting offers from some bigger films, which would have meant more money, but he liked the script and he wanted to work on this film. So he finally had to just tell producers, listen, we're either going to start work on this now or we're going to move on and do another movie. And it worked. He gave them an ultimatum and it worked. And uh, they got to work on the film's effects, although they got to do it with only two months of prep time. And Baker had wanted at least six months of prep time. And they did it with an effects budget of only half a million dollars, which for the... Uh, how extensive the effects are on this film is really, yeah. really low. Yeah. Even well, for 1983. He could, he could go be on return of the Jedi. I'm sure at this point, you know, like yeah. he he's, he's uh, you know, th- these guys are dicking him around and, and, and he would have made a lot more money off of it, but he's wanting to work on this because he thought it was an interesting project. Uh, so, yeah. So finally they're able to come to terms, even though it's uh, again, much more, much less time and much less money than he had originally wanted. And he ended up turning over a lot of responsibility on the film. And in turn, he does give a lot of credit to the members of his crew at his company, EFX. So after American Werewolf, you know, they won an Oscar. Everyone did great work on that. Uh, His crew really, they all kind of wanted more responsibility. They all wanted the responsibility of an entire film on, on their own. So on Videodrome, as Baker describes it, he says, they were the team and I was the coach. So he's there. He's helping. He's working. He's directing his crew, but he's letting a lot of the decisions go through them first. Mm. Uh, He doles out a lot of the effects to them, but he does, he he does save a few choice items for himself to work on personally. He's like, yeah, I really want to do the stomach slit myself. So, you know, uh, he, he definitely gets to cherry pick the effects that he wants to do. So a few of them he did, he, he headed up personally, the rest of them, he just kind of supervised. Now, is it by by knowledge of what's going to be one of the most remembered or is it one of the most remembered because he did it? Uh, that's a good question. I think that he probably just saw the challenge of pulling it off. Yeah. So for that effect uh, specifically, the stomach slip, or as I uh, referred to it as me and my wife were watching it, the tummy pussy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He <laughs> used a, a similar technique to what Which is weird because that was James Wood's nickname on set, I heard. T- tummy pussy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he used a similar technique to what he had used for his werewolf transformation scene in American Werewolf. So, for this by, scene, by the way, best werewolf transformation in still cinema history. Still, 40 years later, still the best. So for this scene where, where Max first discovers the slit, you know, sitting on the couch, 
Uh, James Woods had to remain motionless for hours inside of a hollowed out sofa while Baker blended an artificial torso and legs onto Woods' exposed head and arms. Uh, pretty simple effect when you think about it, but the getting them to blend, obviously, that takes a, a great deal of, of talent. And Woods called it the hardest acting day of his life. And he later vowed that he would never do this type of effects work again. He was miserable during this movie. Uh, during the, any of the effects stuff, he complains about it a lot in, in interviews. So for another scene, the scene where uh, Barry Convex is devoured by cancerous growths. Remember, we mentioned the original concept for that earlier. So initially, the idea was that it was going to be an, an external effect. The flesh gun that Max has would shoot little globules of like little tumorous looking items, and they'd stick to the outside of a person and then take them over like that. Mm. So, which sounds interesting on page, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. Uh, Baker ended up asking each member of his team to come up with a different way to achieve the desired effect. And they came up with some cool ideas, all varying, you know, methods, but none of them quite worked the way that the script was written. You know, nothing was, was really working the way they wanted it to. So Baker eventually reconceived it. And of course he had to go to Cronenberg and say, Hey, here's an idea I have. I think I could get this effect to work pretty easily if we do this. And it was to, to reconceive it as an internal cancer that would grow until it bursts out of someone's body. So as, as you know, the gun shoots, it just looks like a, a bullet going into you. But Cronenberg was on board. He liked the idea. And they did, they pulled it off pretty simply. They basically, uh, Baker basically put guys from his crew under a raised set, the stage where he uh, is laying on. And they pushed the cancer through a hollow dummy. So they made a uh, they made a, a cast of Les Carlson's face, and they created this life size dummy. And they basically had like gloves, you know, that looked like the cancer, the the bits of tumor that they would push up through this body from underneath the floor. Really simple when you think about it, but to pull it off and make it look good, uh, it's it still took a lot of talent. And there are photos of some of the guys behind the scenes after that because there's so much blood they're just covered in gore like head to toe just covered in <laughs> fake blood <laughs> nice so the weapon that they used for that scene the flesh gun uh that was pretty simple it was a zippered foam latex sex tape flesh gun <laughs> so that was a zippered foam latex glove covered in ky jelly and Woods had to wear this thing for much of the final weeks of the film shoot. He had to wear it a lot because the whole like last act of the film, the majority of the last act of the film, he's got it on his hand. But he he hated he hated you know, like I said he hated the special effects in in general. But he hated this specifically uh, because he had some concern about the scenes where you know where when it shoots and you've got this like white mist coming out. What they used for that was freon. You know, pretty simple. It would just shoot a, a Freon gas out. But Woods actually doesn't have feeling in three of the fingers on his right hand because of some childhood accident that he'd had. So he was really worried that he would get frostbite from the Freon on his hand and never know. So after every single take, he would take the whole thing off to make sure that his fingers weren't like turning blue from the Freon. I read that he actually painted them blue at one point to freak out David Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, he did. He, he, he painted them blue. And ran over to David Cronenberg in like a panic. And David Cronenberg just simply was like, well, I guess you should go to a hospital and get that checked out. 
He was used <laughs> to it at this point. You see this James Woods and all this complaining and all this bullshit. This is why people chose Lance Hendrickson. You see, <laughs> the people I, chose Lance Hendrickson. Is that what you're saying? The people chose Lance Hendrickson <laughs> over James Woods as their craggly faced hero. <laughs> yeah, with the, <laughs> with the voice like this. Uh, Lance Hendrickson's got a great voice. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else ever had this problem, but growing up, like as a movie nerd, I always mixed up James Woods and Lance Hendrickson for some reason. Like, yeah, seemed like I never mixed them up, too. but there are definitely people I've mixed up that way that doesn't make any sense, really. <laughs> While Baker's EFX crew was responsible for all of the film's visual effects, there was another guy who was responsible for all of the film's video-related props, uh, like Harlan's Lab, and for all of the film's video effects. And that was a guy by the name of Michael Linick. Uh, so Linick had worked in other films um, in the same capacity, although nothing to the huge extent that was required for Videodrome. Uh, but when he was originally hired for Videodrome, he was hired... Uh, just to do he the producers wanted him to create a waterproof television that's why they hired him no small feat to create a working television that also is waterproof but that's why they hired this guy he was an expert in this kind of stuff and yet we're going to get to the waterproof television in a minute we'll talk a little bit more about that but at his first production meeting you know he goes over the script and he asked he's like how is max wren going to put his head through a television and how is Nikki going to, as the script put it, Twitch video? And the producers, they seem to kind of think that those effects might fall under Rick Baker's watch, like the kind of stuff that he's doing. Uh, but they quickly realized that there was a bunch of stuff in the script that they hadn't really considered. So they asked Lennox to prepare a budget, go through the script, prepare a budget uh, based on all of the video effects that he saw in the story that he might need to work on. So he does that and he comes in with what he called a very tight budget of about $200,000. And the producers basically laughed in his face. Uh, they hurled the budget back at him across the desk and told him that he could have a budget of $62,000. No, no more. Uh, so as a result, uh, a bunch of the scripted effects got cut, including uh, that scene that he was originally hired for uh, the, the under the waterproof underwater television. It was because Cronenberg d decided that it would constitute a false turning point for Max Wren. Mm. So what this scene was supposed to show was a flesh, the flesh TV uh, coming out of the water of Max Wren's bathtub. So in the scene, the way it plays out, Max looks into the bathroom mirror and what reflects behind him, the wall is this TV-like image of the Videodrome set. You know, the clay wall, two hooded figures, they start walking towards him, but it looks like it's on video behind him. Understandably freaked out, he decides he's not going to take a bath after all. He's got his bath, you know, ready to go. And he reaches in the water to pull the plug, but as he reaches in, his TV set suddenly rises out of the water with Masha's face on it. Masha is the lady who is helping him find, you know, Videodrome. Mm. So her, her face is on it. She's got a leather strap around her neck on the screen. And she says, they killed me, Max. I wasn't supposed to tell you about Brian Oblivion. And then Max collapses with his arms around the TV set. Now the shot itself of him in the mirror was pretty complex to shoot. Uh, but Lennox and his crew, they, they had it figured out. It would have involved two highly reflective scotch light screens, a 16 millimeter projector and a front projection system, which is the same kind that was used to make Christopher Reeve fly in Superman. Uh, the final shot would have had a non-video Max in the foreground standing in front of a background that looked like video on a television. 
it would have been being projected on these screens. Now that sounds like a pretty simple effect in today's movie making. It would have, uh, he would just have been in front of a green screen or something, you know, very, very easy to do probably. And a lot of the effects that Michael Lennick was hired for probably now would have been just done with CGI. Mm. Uh, but that's why I love talking about these old movies though. I love seeing their, the way that they figured these things out when CGI wasn't an option. Not, yeah. and, and there's a lot of artistry in CGI. So there's no discounting like the artists who work on that stuff. But, you know, something like this would be very, very simple to do today. You could probably do it. I could probably do it on the Mac that I'm talking to you guys through right now if I wanted to, you know, like <laughs> very, very easy. Um, Weird. The most expensive part of it was that James Woods, like uh, the first day, took a TV into the bathtub and killed himself. And so they had, <laughs> they had to, to reanimate him. <laughs> they had to reanimate James Woods for this film. Well, that's, I'm just talking like, I'm talking about the complexity of just creating that video background behind them. The, the question of how to submerge a television set in a bathtub without killing James Woods uh, was a pretty big, uh, that's a big ask from the producers and from the script. Mm. And they had, there's a lot of trial and error here. Not trial as in we're going to throw a guy into a bathtub and see, (laughs) but just like uh, trying to figure out what's the best way for us to do this. David Cronenberg very calmly, like, (laughs) all right, he survived that. Let's see how much more he can take. Okay. Let's take him to the hospital. We can't get get that looked at. (laughs) We can't get a full image on this one. So let's amp up the electricity a bit. James looks fine. His hair's a little messy, but. (laughs) Maybe that's what's wrong with James Woods now. (laughs) He did like 37 takes of him getting electrocuted by a bathtub TV. Uh, sorry, sorry, James. The boom was in the shot. We're going to have to do it one more time. Uh, but here's how they actually did it. They took a tall fiberglass bathtub. They hollowed out the bottom so that the TV could rise through a hole in the bottom of it. And they had talked about using a non-conductive fluid in the bathtub instead of water. Uh, this like clear fluid that looks like water but wouldn't conduct the electricity but that idea was nixed pretty quickly due to its cost stuff was like 25 dollars a quart and they were going to need 50 gallons of it so it's a little expensive so they needed to find a way to do this with real water so they ended up pulling everything out of the tv that they didn't need if there was a part in there that wasn't going to be useful for this scene they pulled it out every single electronic component and then they sealed up the rest with insulation they were they, they used every possible inch of the inside of that with insulation so to try to insulate anything that could shock somebody Uh, and they tested it out in a tank and they were thrilled to see that it worked uh there there, none of the electricity got conducted through the water so it was a go they were ready to go and then the scene ends up getting cut before it ever got filmed so they had the complete effect ready to go and filmed which again this goes back to my quote from rick baker where he's like hey if we just kind of storyboarded this out ahead of time uh, we probably wouldn't have spent all this money on hollowing out a television in a bathtub and yeah. all this and saved a little <laughs> bit of money but you know this that's cronenberg's process you know Ugh. so normally Linick and baker's crew would work separately because they're kind of doing two, two different things but there is one effect a major effect in the film where they had to work together and that was the flesh tv itself so you know what i'm talking about when i say the flesh tv like the Mm-hmm. both both versions of, there are multiple versions of it one where it looks like a tv but it's still pulsing and has veins and stuff pop out of it and then later on it's actually colored like flesh uh, so baker designed the look of the tv set while efx members bill sturgeon and kevin brennan actually sculpted and rigged the three different sets that were used and the way they did it is they they basically built a wooden frame covered in layers of foam latex skin 
And then inside, like underneath the, the latex, were 70 individual air bladders. Now, normally, if you need, if you're putting bladders in something, there's a very low-fi solution to how you get them to inflate. And it's that you've got a tube with a guy at the end of it blowing into it to inflate the bladder. Yeah. Well, you can't do that when you've got 70 bladders. You can't have 70 guys standing around blowing into tubes <laughs> on a set. It just doesn't work. So they had to figure out a way to do this in a way that that wouldn't involve 70 guys. Uh, so they approached a guy named Frank Carrere. Frank Carrere is the film's physical effects chief. So like physical effects chiefs are the guys responsible for explosions and things like that, or, or window breaking, you know, whatnot. So they went to him for some advice. And he, I'm, I'm interested like, to see if it's going to match up with what I was thinking. I, I remember your mom talking about a movie she did where there were like 70 guys and it involved blowing or something. So I'm <laughs> curious if this pays off. <laughs> It's going to be very different. Oh, okay. (laughs) He tells Rick Baker, he's like, I'm sure we can figure out a mechanical solution to this. Uh, He knew that a traditional switch panel would be too awkward. A switch panel would involve people moving switches on and off as needed. Again, there's 70 of them, so very, very hard to coordinate. So his solution was actually an electronic keyboard, like like a musical instrument, a keyboard. He ended up hooking, so he, he hooked up, he got a keyboard and he hooked up a valve on the keyboard to the bladder through a tube and it worked. So instead of having dozens of people, he only needed like two or three. He actually hired like piano players to do this so that they could coordinate and play the keys as each item needed to expand on this flesh TV. It's a really cool solution. I think wow. to, to, to how to do that. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. It's really neat. Uh, I would love to see some behind the scenes footage on that too, of just three guys just going at it on a keyboard on the side. It I was going to say, I just need a band to pick this up to have like yeah. the guy on a keyboard with like veins <laughs> pulsating out of it that they just yeah. play the keyboard. It just spurts blood or something through it every time. So another of Carrere's jobs in the film was making the flesh TV explode during the finale. Uh, that was a very late in production edition. Remember, this script is being worked on all the way until the very last day of shooting. So this was not originally in the script. Uh, but Cronenberg comes to him a few days before shooting, telling him that he wanted to uh, have blood and guts and innards flying out of the television. Carrere told the director, he's like, there's not going to be time to make them before you need to shoot this, to which Cronenberg replied, who said anything about making them? So what Carrere does is he goes to a local slaughterhouse, tells them what he's doing, and working on this movie, and he buys the complete innards of a pig, to which he added 90 raw eggs, a cow heart, a pork liver, and then he made some slime to put in there as well. Mm. And they fired all this through a piece of breakaway glass with an air cannon, and it didn't really work. It didn't look good. Nobody was satisfied with how it looked. Couldn't really do it again at that point because you've just thrown pig guts all over a room. You can't really pull them back together, you know? Yeah. So they, uh, they decided to shoot it again in a few weeks, uh, by which time they'd actually been able to get some artificial innards. So the footage you see in the movie, those are artificial innards that were created by Rick Baker's crew. <laughs> There's another big set piece involving the flesh TV that has become... One of the central images of the film, I think it's actually the cover of the Criterion Blu-ray, if I'm not mistaken. And that's the scene where Nikki Brand's lips are on the screen and the screen pulses forward, allowing Max Wren to kind of push his head into the screen. Mm. So they're trying to figure this out, how to do this. And after thinking through a few different options, 
Rick Baker decided on a type of durable, stretchy rubber for the screen known as dental dam, not the same kind of dental dam that Todd's thinking about. Because I saw you, <laughs> I saw you giggle on our last episode when we said dental dam. Uh, it is not the same thing. Dental okay. dam is a dental dam is a type of rubber that's used by dentists to create bridges. Uh, so it's very, very durable. Also, they found out that when you, you paint it bright white, it's very reflective. So that's what they did. They got a big piece of this. They painted it bright white, stretched it over the end of a box inside of that flesh TV that they'd created. And then the, the back of the box was plexiglass. So they were able to project 16 millimeter footage of Debbie Harry's lips onto the rear of the screen. So it looks like it's on the front of the screen. Mm. And then they uh, attached a hose and bellows to the box and then pumped that air in from off screen to kind of give it that breathing effect where it kind of inflates. And inflated actually a little bit more than they were originally expecting, uh, but it made for a really cool effect where his entire head can kind of go into it. It's really, it's a really cool visual. And the way they pulled it off is seamless, I think. Like it really truly looks like a regular television set that just starts kind of pulsing out slowly. And it's, it's a, it's really sort of unsettling i Mm -hmm. think so they also had to transform the screen into a flesh gun for that scene later on uh so to do that baker created a gun similar to the one that was worn by woods throughout the film like in the finale you know uh and so he created another one basically and mounted it on a pole where they would just push it through the same kind of rubber that was just painted flesh color push it forward but then about two days before the scene was set to shoot, Cronenberg does this thing again where he has an idea and he comes up to Michael Lennick. He's like, you know what? It would look really cool if we could uh, make that look, that flesh gun look like video somehow as it comes out of the TV. So Lennick had to figure out how to do this with like two days <laughs> before the shoot. And they Jeez. played with a couple of different ideas. They ended up just using video noise and, uh, you know, white, white noise static and projected it from a 16 millimeter projector onto the flesh gun. And they actually, you know, it fades from the noise to the flesh look during that scene. And that was actually done in camera. They, they were able to like kind of fade it out during the projection. So none uh-huh. of that is done in like post-production that was all done on set that day. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So when Cronenberg's screen the movie they finished the movie there's a there's a little bit more to the filming you know they had to come back for some reshoots they were trying to finish the thing before christmas didn't quite work because cronenberg keeps adding on ideas you know so they went a little past christmas and then they came back for some reshoots after they did some test screenings back in in like the following march i think of 1983 for a few days uh, mostly effects stuff that's when they reshot the um the television exploding with all the innards was during those reshoots in march but they finally finished the film. Uh, it goes through a couple of different cuts uh, during editing. When he finally screened the rough cut of the film to executives at Universal, because we, we haven't mentioned it, but Universal is on board here. Major Hollywood studio, they're going to be distributing the film wide. He thought that screening went really well. He even said that it was probably the most successful preview screening that he had ever had. He said the energy in the room was really good, almost giddy. Everyone there was like they were super happy with the film even though it was a rough cut and there's still some things that needed to be finalized the score and things like that uh there were generally people were really into it at universal and there were high expectations for the film uh between that positive response from the studio and the fact that cronenberg's previous film you know scanners had been pretty successful videodrome was set to be cronenberg's next step this was supposed to be his ticket to a new level of commercial and artistic success 
I mean, think about it. The film's got a lot going for it. It's got a, a fairly health, healthy budget, almost $6 million on this one, uh, bigger than anything else that Cronenberg's done. And the support of the major studio had a well-respected character actor in the lead, and it had special makeup effects by a guy who just won an Oscar. But when it was released in February of 1983, it's it was soundly ignored by audiences. Uh, recouped only uh, about 2.1 million of a 5.9 million dollar budget yeah. didn't do very well no. yeah and cronenberg he he kind of blamed you know in in later interviews uh like in that cine fantastique inter- article which came out later on in 1983 because it came out actually right before the dead zone was to come out uh, he actually kind of blamed universal's release strategy so unlike his previous films, which had rolled their releases out slowly, Universal decided to release Videodrome wide. Uh, so what happens is after underperforming, after just a few weeks, they simply pulled it from theaters. It never had a chance to gain any momentum during its release. Jeez. And Cronenberg was, was later quoted as saying that it had, uh, this is a quote, it had been a mistake to release the film wide. It should have been handled as an art film and been given slow, deliberate promotion using critical response to promote it. And I, I kind of think he's right. I think that that might have been a better strategy because the critical response to Videodrome was pretty positive, uh, o- almost Totally positive. I mean, I think if you look at it on Rotten Tomatoes now, it's in the like 80% range or so, but the majority of reviews were very, very good for the film. Uh, Major publications like the New York Times gave it positive reviews, as did fan press like Cinefantastique. They they raved about it. They were totally on board for it. Uh, But even like Starlog and Heavy Metal, who were more, you know, those were centered on a very niche audience. They found the film to be like almost incomprehensible in plot, but they still gave it positive reviews. And there were exceptions, of course. Uh, the Washington Post, another you know, major publication, called it uh, simultaneously stupefying and boring, <laughs> which I think is a good segue into our next segment, Gary. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of people obviously sat through this movie and uh, some of them were very grumpy afterwards. And so as per usual with these films, somebody needs a nap. I thought it'd be fun just to start off with all the one-star reviews from IMDb. I'll just read the headlines for each because uh, there's plenty for this movie, um, if you were wondering. Um, so let's see. <laughs> Too bizarre. Like everyone forgot your birthday. That's one. That's my favorite one. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, this is just the worst. Terrible. Just terrible. I just could not finish this one. Very pointless and uninteresting. Decent idea, boring movie, crappy script, dialogue, plot, acting, cinematography, music, set, lighting, very poor. Those are all just the IMDb. Hold on, like, uh, say what you will about this movie, but saying that the lighting and the cinematography are bad, like, everything else you say is completely irrelevant because that is just patently false. Like, the cinematography on this is incredible, uh, even if you don't like the story. And Howard Shore's score, I think, is incredible, which was completely scored on a computer. In 1983, well, that, that was a review from uh, the the Bababoo. Uh, the Bababoo, yeah. So uh, their their full review says the idea of this movie was fine, but the script slash plot sucked all to hell. 
crappy scenes. The acting was incredibly boring. James Wood is a decent actor, but here it's freaking embarrassing. At least if the sets and lighting and cinematography and music were decent, there would have been some technical aspects of the movie to entertain the viewer. No, we were presented with poor crap all the way. The plot was a joke. Where was this thing going? I don't know. And I don't care. My rating is an F. One star for effort. That is what happens when you try to write and direct your own film. No one to say, hey, wait, this is not good. Try again. IMDb, IMDb's current rating is a 7.3. That's incredible. This is the same guy who made the remake of The Fly. Good movie. And Scanners, decent movie. With tons of amateur problems. Albert Lamb says, has rape and snuff elements. Very dark film. Hides its intent as to show what happens by being so obsessed with evil things by showing us, the audience, evil things. Not a good film to fill yourself with, in my humble opinion. <laughs> to fill yourself with? Yeah. <laughs> F-E-E-L? Great choice of words, personally. <laughs> I, I have to give him that. It was clever. <laughs> CJ says, don't waste your time. Because I'm so sorry I wasted my time with this. Would rather have spent the $3 on a parking meter. This movie looks like it was written, directed, and produced by a band of 12-year-old stoner kids. Everything in this movie was half-baked, and its release year is no excuse for the ridiculously bad effects. I have uh. never... <laughs> I have never been compelled to write a review before, but I was shocked that something so bad had received so many glowing reviews. This movie left me with a sensation of having watched a meth addict try to convince me that he was making a playing card disappear by tossing it over my head. I hope that this review will save others a precious 1.5 hours. Better to take a nap. Better to watch an unplugged TV for that matter. Ugh. I, that makes me mad. <laughs> that one made me mad. You can't, you can't, you cannot diss the effects in this movie. I, I don't understand that at all. Uh, these are all one-star reviews from Letterboxd. Uh, Jill says, why would my cinema teacher put this on at three o'clock in the afternoon? <laughs> uh, Sully says, David Cronenberg, the Oracle of Sensation. Oh, and a preschool storyteller. Uh, I don't know what preschool you go into, bro. But uh, anyway, Nikos says, David Cronenberg makes consistently terrible, self-indulgent films that might be stimulating if you're a child. Kaylee says, oh, well, fuck you, David Cronenberg. This shit is awful. <laughs> Jugsaw, which is a clever name, says, uh, David Cronenberg is a fugly slut. Do not trust him. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, Arash Larry says, I'm sorry, I didn't delude myself into thinking this was genius. Wow, Tyler says, <laughs> boring, overly long shit. Like your dad leaning over your shoulder and going, you ever think about that? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and, that, uh, that wins for the creepiest thing said on this show today, <laughs> including my, my porn parody titles. <laughs> oh, God. A uh, couple more. Let's see. Uh, William says, I felt like Bart, that Simpsons joke where he's so bored, the clock ticks backwards. 
we get it, man. You were probably repressed as a kid, and now you're putting sex, torture, and other grotesque body imagery in your movies. I'm not saying there aren't some good intentions here, some cool practical effects and such. It's just so overly weird for the sake of being weird. As a result, it's hard to take anything seriously. Plus, I didn't really get the whole concept of Videodrome. What's it supposed to, what am I supposed to take away from that? TV rots the mind? Was this 90 minute just say no PSA? I don't know. It was just so, I was so in, uninterested by the end of this thing that I just didn't care what happened anymore. Reese says, somehow I felt that Cronenberg might not be my thing. There's a certain amount of nonsense a film can make. And I feel that the nonsense outweighs the sense. Okay. I'm sorry, but I don't care what kind of message you're trying to send to the public. Make something worth my time or don't make it at all. Uh, I put, I, I chose that one because Reese starts off with somehow I feel that Cronenberg might just not be my thing. But then at the end says, I'm sorry, but I don't care what kind of message you're trying to send to the public, make something worth my time or don't make it at all. It's like, you're saying you accept that Cronenberg might not be your thing, but at the end you demand that you make that it worth make, your time or not at all. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, weird. Anyway, final review. I just couldn't finish this one says Martin. I do understand in some ways what the film was trying to say. I also know that it's been praised and many consider it an exceptional film. However, I tried watching it tonight and I ended up turning it off about halfway through the movie. Why? Because the extremely violent images were very disturbing, especially because I'm sure folks enjoyed watching this. You see folks being tortured, a woman getting off with some very realistic masochistic behaviors involving needles, burning herself, and more. And after a while, it just was too much. And at that point, I just said to myself, how much of this can I take and should I even keep watching? Seeing folks brutalized just isn't my cup of tea, especially when it's combined with pornographic images and sex. Perhaps I'm too squeamish, but life is too short for me to fill my mind with such stuff. And I do not plan on trying to watch this one again. Once was enough. Enough. You've been forewarned. Uh, sounds like a real prude. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Martin. Anyway. All one of the people. reviews I uh, I found on Letterboxd, is a positive review, four and a half stars, uh, says, if your boy... I don't even venture into those depths, Justin. <laughs> it says, if your boy pulled a big bag of weed out of his chest pussy, would you smoke it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in the bag. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so despite what these people, some of their reviews <laughs> sound like, Videodrome has actually gone on to become one of Cronenberg's most celebrated films. A lot of modern critics consider it his best or close to it, like upper tier uh, Cronenberg. And I uh, I personally just, you know, to throw my opinion out, I love this movie. I think it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, like this is when I think of David Cronenberg, this is what I think of as Videodrome. Uh, but I get that it is not an easy watch. Uh, it's not a turn your brain off kind of movie. Uh, none of Cronenberg's films are, I don't think. Uh, I think it's a difficult film with a plot that, as many of its critics, even the ones who liked it, have said is nearly incomprehensible, uh, no matter how many times you watch it. But I think that it's actually part of the, I think that's, I think that's purposeful. I think it's purposefully difficult because the movie is, uh, as Cronenberg put it, a first person movie. The entire film is seen from the point of view of an unreliable and very likely insane narrator. So what do you guys say? Had you guys seen this movie before? Is this, uh, a, 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 
first time watch for you? This, yeah, this was a this was first. It's not. I mean, I was aware of it, but yeah, this was the first time I actually sat down to watch it, uh, beginning to end. And uh, I, I get the the performances are fine, and uh, and the special effects. I you know we talked about at length. They're they're really fantastic, but I mean. I kind of go into these things to um, to get swept up in the story and talking about, I mean, we mentioned multiple times that they were working on the script like every day. I think that's reflected a little bit. I mean, granted, if we're seeing this through the eyes of James Wood's character, yeah, it's going to feel disjointed and kind of weird. But if you're not hip to that, it might come off as, disorganized and incomplete and all of that stuff. So I, I felt confused a little bit by, you know, by the time the end rolled around and I was waiting for a different resolution to some things. I was waiting for more explanation on something because it, there's a lot of plot elements that are like really cool, but I don't feel that they were, fully explored and it wouldn't have taken much but maybe a few more lines of dialogue but again if we're seeing this through the eyes of max who's who is going insane or who is insane then maybe that's then maybe that's the point maybe that's what causes this disjointed feeling of the plot and story but yeah it it didn't really hit for me just because i i was struggling to find okay, where are we going? Who are we talking to now? Why are we talking to this person? And what's the outcome of this? And why is all this happening? And, and it's, it seemed to, to snowball as, as it went along. But knowing, knowing now that it is supposed to be through Max's eyes, that actually does shed some light on it. I don't know that it improves my experience, but it makes more sense. I'm looking at David Cronenberg more as avant-garde than anything at this point, more than I ever gave him credit for before. Like he's not, you know, I don't know if the comparison could be made, but I mean, we've kind of talked about it when setting up uh, films to cover. He's more David Lynch than he is John Carpenter or something. You know, I don't know. Mm. Like he's the, the fact that he ever, achieved major commercial successes almost feels like an anomaly, you know, like almost. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because I mean, because his movies are not, they don't feel like they're made for the masses because Mm -hmm. they are fucking weird and they're, they're highly, they are avant-garde and they're highly philosophical and highly intellectual. Yeah. I think uh, still leave it after this one. The brood is probably his most, accessible movie um out of the ones we've covered so far uh i, w- I would give it to the brood uh so i mean overall just as a movie like that's probably still the best as far as like a movie that everybody can watch and appreciate that he's a really great filmmaker if that makes sense i don't I'm, i don't mean that to take away from anything else but i don't know my parents sitting down to watch video drone they're gonna be like what the fuck do you get into (laughs) (laughs) and so uh and it's not it's not to take away video video drone is very well made i don't get any of the people that said that it's yeah it's not uh it's it's a very well-made film and it clearly has a purpose 
And I appreciate a lot of it. In fact, like watching it the second time I watched it this time around, because I watched it, I mean, the second time I watched it, this set of times of watching it, um, I appreciated how much just difference there is in the fact that he has these like scenes of like people sitting around talking, which I don't feel like you get in any movie anymore. <laughs> it's just yeah. like uh, James Woods and uh, Bia- Bianca Oblivion or what? I forget her. Bianca. Name. Bianca. Yeah. 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 They're, they're just like hanging out at a table in a restaurant, just like having a conversation. And so you got to get drawn. Well, in that's, by Ma- these- that's him and Masha at the restaurant. Oh, yeah. It's him yeah. and Masha. That's right. Sorry. They're just like sitting around and like having a conversation and just like you get drawn into the conversation between yeah. the two of them. Then there's that versus the insane bullshit that happens like throughout the movie too. I don't know. It's just interesting. He, he, he's good at everything he's trying to do. And it is a weird mix mash of like, of these things, but it's a, I don't know. I like the movie. I'm glad I have it. I own it now and uh, I don't regret it. It's just, it's just, it's just not one of those movies, like just the casual movie goer can sit down and watch and just get, it's not, but I mean, not every movie needs to be, you know, this is, and like I said, this is not, uh, Cronenberg is not a filmmaker for the masses. I don't think, uh, I mean, a lot of his movies got released wide and all, and several of them did very, very well. Um, I don't know what his highest grossing movie is. If I were to hazard a guess, I would probably say Eastern promises. Uh, but I, without looking into it, I don't know. And that movie is probably his most like, made made for the masses (laughs) you know right i feel like but that's not his concern i mean yeah he wants to he's trying to make movies that connect with audiences but he's not diluting his voice to do so like he's going to make a david cronenberg movie regardless uh and if it makes money it does if it doesn't you know that sucks but we'll try it again next time you know uh and this one was supposed to be that for him. This was supposed to be like his big commercial breakthrough. And I don't know how anyone at Universal, like <laughs> yeah. I, I said that I said that that screening went really well, but I don't know how any of those executives were like, yeah, this is going to play in malls across America and people are going <laughs> to love it. I uh, seriously like, I, think they saw the brood and they're like, this guy's going to do it. And then they saw like, like, like maybe some of the effects and they're like, oh, this is going to be wild. This is going to be a wild ride. But by the time they actually sat down and saw the whole movie, they were like, Okay, we fucked up. So, uh, <laughs> what do we what do we do now? Uh, I think Videodrome is also a another kind of eerily prescient look at society from Cronenberg. Cronenberg uh, is the more and more I read about him and listen to interviews and read interviews with him and things. I the guy's a genius, an absolute genius. Like we said that about the um, the Wachowskis a lot. I feel like uh, how how like incredibly intelligent they are mm. and i feel the same way about cronenberg and, and intelligent in like a very i don't know it, it feels very similar in the way that he's commenting on society to to how the wachowskis do it uh i i feel you know we've said this about a couple of those movies already about how they can feel prescient like you know like the vaccination cards uh from the end of rabid like that feels oh, yeah. especially right now like feels like damn that was four decades ago you know right mm-hmm. And while Videodrome was made during and about the VHS era, you could easily easily substitute the internet in instead of television, and the message would be the same. Uh, maybe even more relevant, since now we live in an age where technology facilitates everything we do every day. Like, it is very much a part of who we are, more so than it was in 1983. 
you well, know, not, not even sorry to step on what you're saying, but just on that, that exact point too. And, and it just hit me. One thought I had during it was that, uh, and I think this spawns off a David Cronenberg interview I saw, but talking about like what people really want from entertainment, not just like a screen only offers you so much, mm-hmm. like, you know, that there's still the screen there and what's happening on the other side. And people are, are like digging into these things and like hoping to find something they're not supposed to see and hoping to, uh, experience something new and but the ultimate thing is like meta you know like like you're trying to like dive into this like that it becomes a part of you this alternate yeah. reality that you can just enter into and uh and he says yeah it seems like it gets kind of dark but he's like come on he's like that what people want is dark like yeah. he's, he's like that's really the desires like the things that you can get out of creating an alternate reality he's like that's kind of a dark vision uh in Absolutely. a lot of ways i mean it's what it's 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 what the movie's about is people becoming one with that technology where they're no longer content to just spectate they want to merge with it i mean the and the fact that like if I lose my iPhone, I feel like I've lost an appendage, you know, like that's how, that's how we live in, in our current day and age, much like how Max merges with the technology surrounding him. Like our, my, our iPhones are very much a part of who we are. It feels like these days, you know? Well, that's a hundred percent what he's talking about a lot. Like with uh, even the VHS belly pussy (laughs) he's like (laughs) but he's saying like you know like we we like to separate that like there's uh machines and technology and how much does it control us he's like but really those things are just extensions of ourselves already like where does it begin and we end and that whole thing i mean that's that's kind of the stuff he's playing with here like you know it's like Mm. you can treat a gun as a separate thing than you but it's an extension of your arm reaching out with a gun and right that gun's not going to do anything on its own. Yeah. I think, I mean, Videodrome feels like this is Cronenberg, the prophet. He's predicting the way that sex and violence and media and technology converge in everyday life. Because Cronenberg is, one thing that I've really discovered as we talk more about him, he's really a master at tapping into the collective subconscious in a way that very few filmmakers are. Uh, I mean, this movie practically predicted reality television. Bianca Oblivion says at one point that public life, she's talking about her father, but she says that public life on TV is more real than private life in the flesh. Like if that's not, if that's not the very definition of the fucking Kardashians, then I don't know what is. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted though, that Cronenberg himself waves off the idea of being prophetic in any way Uh, in the audio commentary on this. He actually says this, here's a quote from him from that commentary. Uh, A lot of people have thought of this film as very prophetic. I myself have never been interested in being a prophet of any kind. But when your antenna are out there waving in the breeze and you allow them to develop because you think of yourself as an artist, you will undoubtedly pick up some signals from somewhere in the Videodrome way that other people don't pick up. So he's saying, hey, I'm not trying to prophesy, but I'm being perceptive to to mm. the winds of change and the way things are around me that's uh that, that goes back to the thing i was talking about with the cathode mission or whatever that that they're like uh the idea that there are going to be groups out there that try to reach out to other people to like put the internet 
and everywhere that doesn't have the internet who are the people that don't have access to it you can you can phrase it or frame it as a good thing and and i think that everybody's intentions are probably good but like is there like this deep seated feeling inside of you that you got to get everybody plugged in you got to get everybody plugged into the same network everybody needs to be Mm. in our central (laughs) nervous system of of society or whatever well, and you know, starting back on the brood, I, I think we mentioned this during one of our episodes, but Cronenberg kind of began exploring the way that the physical body and the mind are connected, uh, which is a theme that he continued with scanners, obviously. But I think that exploration goes much deeper, even in Videodrome. Like Max Wren is going out of his mind, but the way that it's depicted in Videodrome is as a grotesque physical mutation. Because uh, Cronenberg, Cronenberg is a staunch atheist. Uh, you know, he, he will, in fact, there was a, a deleted scene in this, which hinted at the afterlife uh, because it had him and I think Nikki brand reconnecting and he cut it because I don't, he's like, I can't like, based on my personal beliefs, I can't suggest that there's an afterlife. Cause I don't believe that there is one is what he said, you know, yeah. but he really is in this film. I don't know. He, he feels like he's going much further than he did in that realm than he did with the brood and with scanners. Like he's really showing how, even though most people think of the mind as like a separate entity from the body, like they really are one and the same. The mind is part of the body. You know, it's not your thoughts can be manifest in in the movie, of course, in a very literal sense. Mm. And that's why I think that this movie kind of works as I, I said earlier, I called it a Rosetta stone to Cronenberg's work, but it really is kind of a key to his work. Like if you see Videodrome, you see all of his obsessions, not just that one, because that, that's one that had been explored in the brood and, and scanners, but, you know, existence, which comes out a, maybe a decade after this, maybe more than that, actually, I think it came out in the late nineties existence depicts the merging of flesh and technology existence is very much an update of videodrome using what was then current technology of virtual reality and video games uh, but a very similar concept otherwise uh, although it is i think a little more streamlined and, and much easier to follow in existence uh, crash has the opening of new sexual orifices much like the tummy pussy in max's belly uh <laughs> The, the, you've got the nightmare logic that you'll see again in Naked Lunch, like everything that you'll see in, in Cronenberg going forward or going backward are all here in Videodrome. I really do think that I, I don't know that this is my favorite Cronenberg movie. It's up there. It's probably top three, but I do feel like it's almost his magnum opus because this is like everything he's ever wanted to say or ever will say in a movie he's saying in this one here. Uh, so we, I, I mentioned Martin Scorsese a couple of episodes ago. Martin Scorsese is, uh, is a huge Cronenberg fan. And there's a re- really great quote. I, it might have even been in that, that Fangoria article uh, that I originally quoted a few episodes ago. But he says that no one makes movies like his. Nobody makes movies like Cronenberg. And what, what he's saying is not, I don't think he means that from a technical standpoint, although Cronenberg's movies are very technically well done, especially as he gets further along. I think this is his most technically accomplished so far. Uh, I think the crew that he surrounded him with, we haven't mentioned Carol Spire on this episode, his art director, his production designer, but I think her work here is absolutely stunning. Um, 
the Videodrome set itself, like every set in this movie, honestly. I think she's knocking it out of the mm-hmm. park on this one. And I think Mark Irwin's doing next level stuff in this movie. This is a gorgeous film. And if you have that Criterion Blu-ray, like I can't believe how good it looks. It's, it looks really stunning. But I think what Scorsese is really saying is that like, Cronenberg's brain just works differently than anyone else's, you know, and his, and as a result, his movies feel much different than anyone else's because they're, they're both cerebral and visceral, which is kind of an anomaly in the horror genre. I feel like most filmmakers, uh, especially at this time in the early eighties, you either went one way or the other, you're either making a mindless gore fest or you're doing like a more of a meditative horror mm-hmm. kind of thing now nowadays there's a little bit more of this with like some of the stuff you know the a24 movies and things like that i think you get a little bit of best of both worlds there but in 1983 nobody was making a movie like like david cronenberg yeah so i want to ask you guys this is a, we're about to wrap things up but we want to get into our further viewing segment if you guys were to this is a, this is a tough one <laughs> Honestly, this, this is, it's such a weird fucking movie that how do you how do you pair anything with this movie? Uh, what would you guys pair? Uh, I would say, I, well, you know, part of one of the things I was watching and that stuck out to me and that we praised throughout this episode were the special effects. And one of the I think it's the scene where Max sticks his head, you know, into the into the TV. It made me think of the ring for some reason and i kind of like this idea of this sort of underground thing that's kind of floating around it's become an urban legend Mm -hmm. um so i think i think that's how i'd pair it in fact i you know maybe there's an alternate universe where the story of one leads to the story of another but uh (laughs) yeah that that's that would be my pairing that's a pretty good pairing are you talking about the uh now would you do the remake of the ring the american remake or the original ringo i I I'll go American remake just because just because I had such a strong response to I'll it. I'll be honest. It, it I think I think the remake really freaked better. me out. <laughs> the American I, remake combines all the good elements of the Japanese versions. But yeah, that's, I mean, I think the American remake is superior to the original in that in that particular case. Nice, nice. but I think yeah. that's a good pairing. I think that's a great pairing. It's that still a sort of killer technology thing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would go with uh, probably. Be kind, rewind, or high fidelity. Oh, yeah. I, no, no, I'm just kidding. There's <laughs> something else with videotapes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, I, I think for me, like the immediate thought I had with this movie is like you just got to go complete mind fuck, like somebody going insane. Um, so my first thoughts were movies like Eraserhead or uh, Pie, probably. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, Pie would be good. Nice. That's a, that's a good call. I like that. Uh, those eraser head and pie together also is a great double feature. Right. Right. These all <laughs> feel like they're in a similar yeah. weird space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I would go with, um, I mean, if you wanted to do another Cronenberg existence, it feels like the, the obvious choice, but I think that um, altered states with, uh, with William Hurt, rest in peace uh, would make a good one. Cause it's another one about, kind of the boundaries of consciousness and what's what's real and what's not you know i mean he goes about it a very different way i think there's some uh shamanism and stuff involved but it's a it's a really cool movie 
too, nice. by the way, and and with special effects by Dick Smith, I believe. So I'm somewhat uh, of a Dick Smith. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also probably. I mean, you could go Total Recall for a, a different play. Yeah, about a story that sort of blurs the lines between what is real and what is a hallucination, or in that case, a an implanted memory. Yeah. You know, you, you could see why Cronenberg was attracted to that material because it does, it does oh, tread yeah. similar ground uh, for that matter in the mouth of madness. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. Totally could see that. Uh, but my, I think my number one pick would probably be a fairly recent movie that, um, also kind of deals with the idea of of blurring the line between what is real and what is not real and that's possessor from a couple years ago oh yeah uh, uh-huh. which happens to be directed by brandon cronenberg uh, david cronenberg's son and yes. it is a fucking cool movie if you have not seen possessor i highly highly recommend it if you're into cronenberg's stuff i mean his son is is carrying that torch he's doing really great stuff cool. you've seen possessor right gary I have, yeah, yeah, yeah I totally love it. And no, when you said that, it was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That yeah, it's a it's a really great movie. Uh, it really feels like the the David Cronenberg movie that David Cronenberg never made, but you know his son did, so it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and it's just an outstanding movie in general, I think. So you know, Videodrome didn't do very well at the box office. It was, I mean, I guess you could classify it as a box office bomb. It made back a third of its budget. So I would say that that's a bomb. It did really bad. But fortunately, its disappointing performance wouldn't really have a chance to affect Cronenberg's career. By the time that Videodrome was released in theaters, work was already well underway on his follow-up film. In fact, he was already shooting his follow-up film. Uh, Videodrome came out in February of 1983. He started shooting his next movie in January of 1983, uh, just a a month earlier. That film would eventually be released a mere nine months after Videodrome, and it does mark Cronenberg's first, but certainly not last, film that was an adaptation of uh, of pre-existing material. Uh, So that's where we're going to pick back up. On our next episode, uh, we're going to talk about the story behind that film, which is, of course, The Dead Zone. Uh, And we'll talk about it, but The Dead Zone uh, fared much better at the box office than Videodrome. It's going to be a big success for Cronenberg. So we're going to pick back up there next week, and then we'll wrap things up an episode after that. Before we go, guys, you guys want to tell our listeners where you can be found on the internet? I'm at uh, This Is Gary Horn on all the social medias. Uh, you can catch some of my other stuff on at NWA, NWA wrestling, do a bunch of stuff over there, but, uh, check it out. And I can be found hosting my weekly podcast, podcast, podcast. Uh- <laughs> I love your podcast. <laughs> yep. That's the, that's the podcast. This is the computer resume podcast where, uh, <laughs> We cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. And you can join me in a rotating panel of comedians, actors, authors, family and friends, and occasionally Gary. Star Trek alum. Yes, and Gary. <laughs> <laughs> for a fun discussion, uh, wherever you get all your podcasts on all the socials at Computer Resume. And you can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter and Instagram and Letterbox as well. And uh, you can find the podcast at cinema underscore shock. You can find us there on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook and everything. 
and uh, cinemashock.net where you can find all of our episodes. You can find links to our Discord channel. You can find links to our merch. All that good shit. All the good shits on cinemashock.net. Until we meet again. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. I want you to stay away from it. Those Mondo Weirdo video guys, they've got unsavory connections. They play rough, rougher than even Johnny wants to play. You know, in Brazil, Central America, those kinds of places, having the keys is considered a subversive act. They execute people for it. In Pittsburgh, who knows? That was it. Huh? Wow. What's that? <laughs> I was, I, I've gotten to where I'm trying to guess what Todd's going to do for these. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I wish I, I just am always like figuring out where Johnny. Has I was thinking I was thinking. Death to Johnny. Long live the new keys. Oh, Ooh, that's good. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Should work. This is what Rick Baker was talking about, people. Yeah. Yep. Brevity should have gone should, for storyboard yeah. beforehand. <laughs> Got to plan ahead. All right, I'll see you guys. Where those keys are. Yeah. We'll see you in Pittsburgh. enough about romero in this episode should like well i just just curious (laughs) if if the tv coming from pittsburgh would have anything to do with romero like if he probably not about there's a lot of people who live in pittsburgh you don't know maybe he just thought about george romero whatever anyway no no, gary (laughs) justin does know there's a lot of people living in pittsburgh i don't believe you (laughs) 